What is up, guys? And welcome to Montreal Madness with your host, Tony Montreal. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. First off, I just want to apologize for not having a show last week. I had some technical difficulties uploading uh, my show last week. Alas, I got that all figured out and squared away, so we shouldn't have any more problems moving forward. And with that being said, let's get right into it. So the biggest story in the world of sports this week has to be the postponement of the Steelers game against the Tennessee Titans. Earlier this week, three Titans players, along with five staff members on the team, were tested positive with COVID-19. Two days ago as well, as they retested all the players, another player was tested positive. So the NFL thought it was in the best interest of both teams to postpone their matchup on Sunday at 1 o'clock to a later date. Uh, I think they are thinking either to have it Monday before the uh, original Monday night game between the Packers and the Falcons and either have it before then or play it on Tuesday. So if you ask me, I would rather see them play on Monday afternoon, like at four o'clock, something like that before the Monday night game. So it's not conflicted uh, with the rights that ESPN has uh, to their Monday night football broadcast. And I really just don't want to see it played on Tuesday because, you know, it's unfortunate that the Titans had this happen to them, but it's really unfortunate for the Steelers too. You know, they did not sign up for this. And what I mean by that is, you know, it wasn't their fault that, you know, the Titans contracted COVID-19, um, you know, a few of the players and staff members. You know, I know it's not the Titans' fault either. You know, for what I know, none of the players, they they didn't go out to the bars or party or, you know, go out and do anything they weren't supposed to do or anything like that. It was just one of those things that happened. But with that being said, though, it just, it really screws over um, the Steelers because, you know, they weren't expecting this at all, one. Two, yes, they if the game is Tuesday, they would have an extra day or two extra days now to, you know, game plan and practice and everything for their matchup against the Titans. But they go into a short week then preparing for their uh, following game as well. So I think it's in the best interest for the NFL, for the Tennessee Titans, and for the Pittsburgh Steelers that they play their game on Monday before the Monday night football game between the Falcons and the Packers. Now, on a more personal level, I really think that they should be playing their regular scheduled game on Sunday at 1 o'clock. You know, the NFL, they made sure that every team would have an expanded practice squad for this very situation. You know, so right now the Titans have four players that can't play um, in this game against the Steelers because they have to isolate and quarantine themselves and, you know, all that good stuff. But the Steelers should not have to suffer for it, like I just said. Now, it'd be one thing if, you know, 10 players or something like that came down with it and they couldn't practice, you know, they could only do Zoom meetings and that sort of stuff. They couldn't have team meetings in person or anything like that. Then, yeah, you know, I, you know, I can see that, you know, postponing the game or even rescheduling it 
and you know all that stuff but as of right now it's just four players and from the like and from the looks of it it's just going to be four players because like i just mentioned they re they all retested and everything only one other player caught it as well so that means all the rest of the players should be good because when this was announced i believe on tuesday it was known that every one of the titans from the t uh, from the players to the staff um to the to the coaching and um everybody associated with the team they made sure that they didn't come in contact with with one another um, they didn't, you know, see each other or anything like that. So after this other, just this one lone player uh, got tested positive as well, the rest of the team should be fine. There's no reason as to why the Titans, you know, they can't have uh, scheduled practice on Thursday and Friday and then have a walkthrough on Saturday and then to play the game on Sunday. You know, whenever, before the season even started, Every team knew the risks coming into this season. They were well aware that a situation like this could arise and that they could have a short week in game preparation and practicing and everything associated with that. So they, so the Titans, along with all the other 31 teams, should have been prepared going into the season in case something like just transpired uh, what happened. You know, it has, you know, and that's the Titans fault if they weren't prepared for for, you know, this circumstance um, to happen. So that's on them if they're not prepared and everything like that. You know, there's no reason why the facilities, the Titans team facilities, they can't open up. And they can't start practicing and stuff. Like I said, on Thursday, they have basically three days to practice a game plan and to do a walkthrough before Sunday's game. Now, are they at a disadvantage? Yes, that's obvious. You know, they are at a disadvantage. But this is a very unique year for not just the NFL, but for every sport here in America. So suck it up deal with it and play the damn game like it's like like it should have been on sunday at one o'clock you know they've said all these guidelines they said all these protocols and everything for this very situation and the nfl is not following through with it i just it drives me freaking crazy to, to, to see the nfl the plan all this stuff like the expanded practice squads you know to announce during training camps that this thing could happen to a particular team um, down, you know, down the stretch of the season, and you just have to suck it up and deal with it. And the NFL, I believe, really, really blew this up in everybody's faces. And it's just, it's just a damn shame that the Steelers they can't play their regular um, scheduled game on Sunday because the NFL had to backtrack with what they've game planned through all offseason, all through training camp, and through the first three weeks um, of, of the regular season. And now they're just doing away with that, and they are, you know, shutting the whole um, Titans organization down whenever they are good right now. They are good. Make no mistake about it. They are 100% good to play right now. They did every the Titans did everything the NFL asked them to. Once those three players and five staff members got tested positive, you know they didn't go to the team facilities. They all qu basically quarantined themselves and isolated themselves. Yes, one other player was tested positive, but that was 
after the fact that they all isolated and um you know quarantined themselves so by th so in theory that's it then no other player should you know should be you know tested positive or anything like that because they did everything right according to um the book the nfl gave them in regards to these types of circumstances so in no way shape or form um should they be rescheduling this game and postponing it until Monday or Tuesday or whatever have you? So I am, you know, a little pissed off, you know, because I think this is all for optics and everything like that to make their image look good that they're handling this in the right and proper and safe way. You know, screw that, you know, and I don't mean like, you know, they should play when they're all infected and everything like that and get the Steelers infected. No, I don't want to see that. Nobody wants to see that. It's just my point is that once those players and staff members were contracted with it, they did everything right. And, you know, besides for one other player, the rest of the team and coaching staff and other um, staff of the organization were fine and everything. So, um, you know, they all tested negative. So I just don't understand why they can't play on Sunday. You know, yes, it sucks for the Titans that they'll be down four players and that they won't have the same amount of practice time and, um, you know, game planning and team meetings in person and everything like that. It really does, but... Every team, every player knew come into the season this was a possibility. It happened. So I just don't I just don't know why with with everything that's gone on the past six, seven months, with everybody knowing this could happen, that you know, this is what the NFL is doing right now. Um, I believe the NFL dropped the ball on this um, with their um, with their postponement of the game. I am very disappointed at it. Um, however, though, it is what it is. We'll all have to put up with it. And hopefully the Steelers and the Titans, they can play either Monday or Tuesday. Now, going back to last week, the Steelers, they squeaked out another win against the Houston Texans with a score of 28 to 21. Now, I predicted that this is going to be a tight, close and hard fought game until the very end. And it was. It took the Steelers everything they had to, you know, get by the Houston Texans um, for the win and to start off the season 3-0. But it was not easy, and it sure as hell was not pretty, to say the least. Now, as far as the offense is concerned, I thought they looked really good from the start of the game till the end of the game. Uh, they were moving the ball very well for the whole 60 minutes. They had the ground game working the entire game. And besides for Big Ben missing a few deep shots to Chase Claypool and uh, Deontay Johnson before he got hurt and the James Washington, uh, his timing on his throws on those shallow crossing routes, those slants and a couple out routes, I mean, his timing was, you know, five, ten times better than the week before uh, against the Denver Broncos. He was just a lot more crisp with his throws. They were spot on, right on the money. He was leading his receivers open. They were able to run after the catch and everything. I thought Big Ben in that offense looked really good and really clean. Besides, like I said, for those couple deep shots that uh, Big Ben missed, that offense was clicking. And like I predicted a few weeks ago before the season started, it was going to take them three to four weeks 
for this offense to really find their groove, especially for Big Ben. And I think he is almost there to where we will see the full potential of Ben Roethlisberger for the rest of the year. You know, when he can dial in those uh, couple of deep ball throws that he missed on, I mean, this is going to be a scary offense to go uh, up against week in and week out for opposing defenses. Because once they can get that um, play-action pass going, those deep balls down the sideline and down the middle, connecting to the likes of Deontay Johnson and the Eric Ebron and the Chase Claypool and Juju, I mean, this is going to be scary because I I think they have the uh, running game um, really dialed up right now. And James Conner, I mean, yes, I've been bashing him and uh, really critiquing him and giving him a hard time. But the past two weeks, especially against the Texans, he looked really good. And, and you know, this is what James Conner um, was brought into the Steelers when he was drafted three years ago. To wear opposing defenses out, to, you know, take co- time off the clock, to get big chunks of yardage for second and shorts, third and shorts. Um, and, and, that, and this is where this offense thrives. When, they, when they're not seeing third and nines and third and tens and so on and so forth. Now, you know, I just want to point out, though, too, about James Conner. So I've been saying the past couple uh, episodes where he's this small and scrawny back, like 5'10", less than 200 pounds. I, um, a friend of mine who was a listener of the show, he pointed out to me that James Conner is six foot one and 229 pounds. So I do want to apologize for giving you that false information about him. But in my defense, though, James Conner, despite him being six foot one and close to 230 pounds, he plays like a really small back. He has a hard time breaking arm tackles. He gets tackled way too easily. Uh, defenders, you know, they can trip him up. They can, you know, like I just said, uh, arm tackle him and everything and bring him down to the ground. He just, for a guy that's six foot one, 230 pounds, he sure in the hell normally doesn't play like that. Um, but he really showed you against uh, Houston last week that he could break tackles, that he could uh, slip through um, defenders and, you know, make them miss in the open field. And when he had to get that tough uh, yard or two, and, you know, he did that. And what I want from James Conner is for him to do that on a more consistent basis now. You know, he's done that in the past, yes, but he hasn't been consistently able to do that. So if he can put a couple games in a row here where he can get close to 100 yards a game, get those tough yards in third and one and third and two situations, and really wear a defense out and get them tired by the fourth quarter, you know, I will really change my perspective on James Conner. But he's going to have to prove to me that he can do that on a game-by-game basis. Until then, I'm still really iffy about James Conner being the feature back on the Steelers team. But like I said, if he can keep doing that and everything, this Steelers offense is going to be very, very, very tough uh, to stop and to slow down. Now, on the defensive side of the ball, though, I, I, I can't believe um, the way this Steelers secondary is playing right now. I mean, they were playing so soft against the Houston wide receivers. You know, they were playing this zone coverage, just bringing uh, four guys to rush Deshaun Watson. Now, Mike Tomlin, he did make a point during his post-game press conference in the saying that the reason why they played a soft zone and only were rushing four because they didn't want Deshaun Watson 
to um, really run the ball and to make a lot of scrambling plays and to beat him with his legs. You know, they wanted him to beat them with his arm. And he was doing that the first half. I mean, he had over 200 yards through the air in the first half against the Steelers. He was lighting up left and right. Now, give the Steelers defense and their coaching a lot of credit. They made a few minor adjustments in their game plan going into the second half, and it sure did work. I mean, they only gave up two first downs that entire half. They only allowed Deshaun Watson, um, I believe, 67 passing yards in that second half as well. They forced him into an interception with my boy, Mike Hilton. I think this is Mike Hilton is the defensive MVP going into week four right now. I mean, this guy is flying all over the place. You know, I know in the first half he whiffed on a ball, and because of that, the Texans scored a touchdown um, off of that. But that was his lone mistake probably through the first three weeks. And he made up for it in the second half. He made a really uh, great tackle behind a line of scrimmage on a screenplay to, I think, Randall Cobb along the sideline. He beat a, a defender blocking him. He slipped underneath him and uh, drove Randall Cobb into the ground for a two- or three-yard loss. Right now, he is the Steelers' MVP, in my opinion, right now. But the Steelers' defense in the second half, they just really shut that Houston Texans' offense down. Running the ball, they only gave up 29 rushing yards. And it's going to be really tough for any team to run the ball against the Steelers. I think, the, I mean, when they play the Ravens with that rushing attack that they have, it's going to be real difficult for the Ravens' offense, with as good as a rushing team that they are, to run the ball against the Steelers. I mean, unless the Steelers, they're only having three down linemen and that's it, and they have, you know, five, six uh, DBs in the backfield, no team is going to run against this Steelers' defense. They are just too good. It kind of reminds me of the 2008 Steelers defense as far as their um, run defense is concerned. Opposing offenses, they'd barely be able to rush the ball for 50 yards. They would game plan not even thinking about running the ball because, because you can't. Um, you couldn't um, back with that defense in 2008 with the likes of Casey Hampton, Aaron Smith, Brett Kiesel as the line, with Harrison and Woodley as the linebackers, and then Farrier and Timmons in the middle. And this team, I mean, it really reminds me of that 2008 defense. I mean, you have your one-two duo at outside linebacker with Watt and Dupree. Uh, the middle of that defense uh, with Vince Williams and Devin Bush, that is a really good one-two combo in the middle of that Steelers defense. And then that line, Tyson Alu-Alu. I mean, say what you want about Jason Hargrave. I mean, yeah, he was a really good D-tackle. But I think Alu-Alu is even better than what um, um, Hargrave was. I mean, he is, I think, more athletic. He's a bit faster getting off the line. He's just as big as uh, Hargrave was. And then you have uh, Tuitt, and then you have um, Cam Hayward as well um, on the uh, defensive end positions. And I think they are a better duo than what Brett Kiesel and Aaron Smith were, especially at rushing the passer. Uh, you know, you put any of those guys in one-on-one situation, uh, they are winning that battle 50% of the time and getting to the quarterback in a hurry. So I think this defensive front is even better than what that 2008 Steelers uh, defensive front was. So when you put all that together, I mean, it's just so hard to run that ball against against the Steelers defense. So I think you're going to see attenuation from that um, from here on to the end of the season. And you're going to see a lot of teams just going out and throwing the ball 30 to 40 times a game. Because, I mean, that's how you're going to beat the Steelers defense. You're not going to beat them running the ball. 
so that the so with that being said, the Steelers they should know that coming to every game that defenses aren't going to um, run the ball consistently against them because I mean Saquon Barkley only rushed for six yards. Uh, Denver's offense they only rushed for around uh, sixty to seventy yards, and then Houston with twenty nine. So it's it's going to be damn near impossible for any team to run the ball. So, yeah, in the second half then, going back to what I was alluding to earlier, they made a lot of good adjustments. Um, they were um, bringing the heat to Deshaun Watson. They weren't letting him scramble around and roll out, especially roll out to his right where he's really dangerous um, with his legs, uh, throwing the ball on the run. They kept him contained. They got to him in a hurry. He had no time to drop back and wait and to uh, hit a receiver wide open. And what really um, I think was the key factor was they started to play a lot more man. You know, they had Devin Bush spy on spy on Deshaun Watson in case he would escape out of the pocket um, and try to run uh, for yards. And then they played a lot of man. They didn't play that soft zone that they were doing in the first half. That made Watson hold on to the ball for just one more second, and that's all it took because the Steelers racked up five sacks, seven tackles for losses, um, I think they had four sacks in the second half alone. So, yeah, I mean, this, that's what the Steelers' game plan on defense needs to be every game. They can't be playing that soft zone coverage where Deshaun Watson, or not just Deshaun Watson, but any quarterback has time to throw in the pocket and, you know, find the soft zone um, in the defense and just keep hitting that play after play after play. You know, last year, the reason why the secondary was so good last year was because they were playing more man coverage, and they were bringing four to five defenders into the quarterback and making the quarterback throw the ball earlier than he wants to, and that's where you get the turnovers, and that's what happened when Mike Hilton uh, had the interception. They make Deshaun Watson scramble, throw it before he wanted to. He threw it um, across his body into the middle of the field, and Hilton picked it off, and then that's when the Steelers' offense, they went down and scored that touchdown uh, to make it 26-21 um, with two-point conversion, make it 28-21, and then the rest was history after that. So as long as the Steelers can keep doing that, I like their chances to beat the Baltimore Ravens, the Buffalo Bills, even the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I know they don't play the Chiefs this year, but I would love to see that matchup. And I really do hope that the Steelers can play them at some point in the playoffs just to show how good this defense is when they're playing and firing on all cylinders. But in saying that, just one thing to keep in mind and to be aware of is that the Steelers' opponents in the first three weeks are combined 0-9 right now. So, you know, yes, the Steelers are 3-0. Um, they are looking good for the most part. They're starting to finally shake off the rust on both, on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. But they have yet to face a team that has won a game so far this year. So, you know, yes, am I hyping the Steelers up right now? Are they looking really good? And are they are they getting better each and every week? Yes, that's 100% a fact. And, and that's, that's what the tape is showing right now. But going into uh, this matchup against the Texans, whenever they do decide to play them, whether it be on Monday or Tuesday, this is going to be a true test to see where uh, this Steelers team really is right now at this point of the season. Because Tennessee, they are just a well-rounded and completely balanced team from offense and defense to special teams. There's really no one glaring weakness that the Titans show on a game-by-game -game basis. 
Now, they are led with, obviously, Derrick Henry, who is just a beast of running back. The offense revolves around him. Then you have Ryan Tannehill, where he is an above-average passer. Uh, he's not this prototypical game manager like uh, Tyrod Taylor or a Teddy Bridgewater or one of those quarterbacks. You know, he can put a team on his back, and if they have to come from behind, he has the capability to lead the Titans um, back into a game, moving the ball through the air. But first and foremost, this team revolves around Derrick Henry. They have a couple good wideouts led by A.J. Brown, where he's coming off an injury, but he's looking like he's going to play this week. And he's a really key component to this Titans offense, because once they get that run game going with Derrick Henry, they can open up the play-action passing game and go deep to Brown. So if the Steelers don't beat the Titans this week, they're going to have to stop Derrick Henry from him getting into second and third down um, and manageable situations where they have second and five and third and three or less. They can't let the Titans offense get in those situations because if they do, you know, they can either run out of Derrick Henry, obviously, or they can do what they really do best, which is the play action game, like I just said, and give it to Brown or one of their tight ends. And, you know, that that's where this offense for the Titans shines is whenever they can put all that together and just throw defenses off guard. And it makes opposing defenses play a guessing game and a chess match uh, with the Titans offense. So if the Steelers have any shot at beating the Titans this week, one, they have to stop Derrick Henry. And, you know, he's going to get his 25, 30, 30 touches this week. Um, you know, yes, I've just said that the Steelers run defense is the best I've seen since 2008 and that they can uh, stop any running attack, but they cannot let Derrick Henry go off and start running right off the bat. I think this uh, Steelers defense, they are doing a game plan like they did against Barkley um, and the Giants where they stack the box with eight, nine guys, you know, every time and, you know, to force Ryan Tannehill to throw the ball and to throw the ball deep. And I think the key matchup to look out for is Vince Williams uh, versus Henry because Vince Williams is their star-studded uh, run-stopping linebacker. And that's going to be one hell of a battle to watch out for in this game. Uh, whoever's going to win that battle between Vince Williams and Derrick Henry, I think that is going to be the game within the game. And that's what's going to dictate who comes out on top in this game as well. You know, if they can hold Derrick Henry to under 100 yards... If they can hold this Titans um, rushing attack to just 100, under 100 yards, the Steelers are really going to be favorable in winning this game. Because Ryan Tannehill is no Deshaun Watson. He's not going to put up 200 passing yards in the first half like Watson did against the Steelers last week. That's not going to happen. So that is the game within the game right there. Vince Williams versus Derrick Henry. Watch out for it. Whoever wins that matchup, I believe, is going to win the game. Now, on the, on the offensive side of the ball for the Steelers, you know, the Titans' defense, they do a little bit of everything well. They're not particularly great in one area. Um, they're a bend but don't break defense. So on the um, Steelers' offense, they are going to have to win the red zone matchup. If they can get inside the red zone like they should and they convert those red zone trips into touchdowns, not field goals, I think that's going to be an, another key factor into the Steelers um, coming out on top and being victorious. Because if they just start marching into the red zone but just kick field goals time after time again, I do not like their chances at coming out on top. 
because that just keeps the Titans into the game. You know, the Titans want to make this a low-scoring, close ball game um, come come Monday or Tuesday. If the Titans can come, um, can go into the fourth quarter, um, you know, with a one-score with a one-score difference, um, that's that's favoring the Titans right there because they're a team where they can get turnovers and key turnovers late in the game. They're a team that if they continue to run the ball consistently for the first three quarters, whether well, only getting two or three yards of carry, because eventually Derrick Henry is going to wear out the Steelers' defense. Like he wears out any defense you match him up against if he can get twenty-five to thirty touches. That's just how that's just how powerful a runner he is. He reminds me kind of like Eddie George back in the day when he played for the Titans. I mean, he would get 25, 30 carries a game. And, you know, for the first three quarters, he'd only have, you know, 60 to 70 yards. But then he would turn on the fourth quarter when the opposing defense was worn down and tired. And then he put up those ungodly numbers where he'd get 150, 160 rushing yards in a game. So if the Steelers can prevent this from being a low scoring and tight ball game going into the fourth quarter, if they can slow down Derrick Henry... And if they can convert their trips in the, into the red zone into touchdowns, I, I like the Steelers team beating the Tennessee Titans. And I, I think this will be a low-scoring ball game into the first half, uh, like it has been with every game so far this year. But I think the Steelers, if they game plan right, if they can execute like they did in the second half against the Texans, if they just keep getting better week in and week out like they have and like they've shown, I think this Steelers team... Opens up the game in the fourth quarter a little bit. And I have the Steelers going 4-0 for the first time in over a decade and beating the Titans by a score of 24-16. to Now, with that being said, though, we don't know as of right now what four Titans players have come down with COVID. Because if, you know, Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, anybody on that offensive line has come down with it, I mean, that this is a whole different story. I mean, the Steelers, if that's the case, um, the Steelers should have no problem winning this at all. So it just all comes down to when the Titans do end up playing the Steelers, uh, who they list um, as out in the game uh, with COVID. So we'll just have to wait and find out who did uh, contract the virus on the Titans roster. But until then, if all the Tennessee Titans players, their key players, are active and healthy and everything, I have the Steelers still beating them 24-16. And speaking of undefeated teams, the New York Yankees capped off one hell of a Game 2 finish in the ninth inning to upend the Cleveland Indians 10-9 and sweep their wild card round in the best of three series. And I tell you what guys, this was as good of a game of baseball as there ever can be. I mean, you had everything you could have ever won for in a baseball game in Game 2 on Wednesday night. I mean, you had comebacks, both teams trading leads throughout the whole game. I mean, you had both teams jacking home runs. You had some really good clutch quality at-bats. You had some really good defensive plays. You had some really spot-on pitching in key circumstances. I mean, there is there is nothing that you could ask for to make this game any better. This is just as fun as a baseball game as you can ever watch um, from the first inning on until the last pitch of the game. There was no lull in this game whatsoever. It was just that exciting to watch. You know, you had the Cleveland Indians who put up four runs right away in the first inning, and you had the Yankees chipping away at that lead. Uh, Stanton 
I believe, in the second inning. He had a solo shot to make it 4-1. to one. And then he had Gio Urshela, third baseman for the Yankees, with bases loaded, a 3-2 count. He hit a, uh, a mile shot into the left field's uh, bleachers for a grand slam to make the score 5-4. to four. And then after the Yankees made it 6-4, to four, the Indians tied it back up 6-6 six to six, uh, with a double. And then the Yankees, um, with a two-run blast from Gary Sanchez, make it 8-6. to six. And then the Indians tied it up again to make it 8-8. Eight to eight. And then the Indians took the lead in the eighth inning to make it 9-8. to eight. And then in the ninth inning, you have the machine, DJ LeMahieu, who is arguably the best player on the Yankees team, if not in all of baseball. He led the uh, major leagues in batting average. He hit a ball right up the middle to score the game-winning run to make it 10-9. to And then you have the best closer in the game in Aroldis Chapman, shutting down the Indians at the bottom of the ninth for the victory. And which advanced the Yankees into the divisional round against division rival and division winners of the AL East, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, let me just tell you a little something about DJ LeMayhew. Now, I know he doesn't hit the long ball like Aaron Judge and Stanton and a lot of these guys in the Yankees roster. But I tell you what, I'd rather have a team full of DJ LeMayhews than a team full of Aaron Judges. And here's why. You know, for as good as Aaron Judge is, He either hits a home run or he strikes out. He is not a consistent contact hitter with, you know, a lot of the Yankees players in that roster. They're not consistent contact hitters. More often than not, they either hit a home run or they strike out. There's no no in-between for a lot of the players on this Yankees roster. But, But DJ LeMayhew... He will get you singles. He will get you quality at bats. He will work the uh, he will work the pitcher. Um, he will you know do anything you ask him to do. He can bunt. He can steal bases. He plays tremendous defense. He can play almost any position in the infield. He is just an all around great baseball player. And I'll take a team full of DJ Lemayhews who consistently hit over 300. You know, close to 330. You know, he hit 364 in 60 games this year. And I, I'd rather see a team full of uh, DJs and a team full of Aaron Judges. He's just he's just that type of guy. And those types of players, like the like the DJ Lemayhews uh, in the league, those are what win you playoff games. You know, getting on base. You know, and bringing you know hitting that clutch RBI and scoring runs and making great defensive plays in the infield. That is what playoff baseball is all around is all about and that's the type of player you need on your team and he i mean he was a steal in free agency you know he was really good when he first started his career with the rockies he fell off there for a little bit um, because of injuries they picked him up off a free agency very cheap and ever since he came on with the yankees he looks like his old self from a few years ago and maybe even better than before i mean this guy has experience now he's still in the middle of his prime and there's just no other uh, clutch player on the Yankees like DJ LeMahieu. Now, I know Yankee fans and Major League experts, they like to rave about Derek Jeter and how clutch he was and how much of a good contact hitter he was, you know, just getting on base all the time. And yes, Derek Jeter is a rightful Hall of Famer, our first ballot Hall, Hall of Famer. I mean, the captain, I mean, what more can you say about Derek Jeter? But I tell you what, DJ, the way he's playing right now, is giving Derek Jeter a run for his money. 
I, that's just a type of guy he is. I just I love DJ so much, as you guys can tell. And there's just nobody on this Yankees roster. There's I don't think there's anybody in baseball like DJ. And I'm just so glad the Yankees have him on their team. Now going into this matchup, the Indians and the Yankees they never face each other at all um, during the regular season. But they've had some uh, playoff history before between the two teams. Uh, dating back just a f uh, two years ago in the divisional round. So it's not like these teams weren't familiar with each other. You still have a lot of key pieces from both teams two years ago on the roster today. And everybody knew going into the playoffs that this is going to be one hell of a matchup. Now in game one, the Yankees just simply blew them out of the park. You know, Garrett Cole, he had 13 strikeouts. Um, he set a, a Yankee postseason record with 13 Ks. And six Yankees, or yeah, six Yankees hit a home run in this series. And six different Yankees hit a home run in game one alone. And you can tell right from the start of game one that it wasn't going to be a game at all. I mean, the Yankees, they were just firing on all cylinders. And it started with that two-run shot by Aaron Judge in the top of the first to make it 2-0 right away. And the Yankees never looked back from there. But give the uh, Cleveland Indians a lot of credit. They came back in game two. Um, you know, they put their pedal to the metal right away, scoring four runs in the first inning. But the Yankees, they never faltered. They kept chipping away. Like I mentioned earlier, that huge at-bat by Gio Urshela with that grand slam hit in the fifth or the fourth inning. Uh, that was that was the play of the game right there. If not for that, you know, the Yankees, I don't think they'd come back. Because it was a back-and-forth game all the way to the very end um, once um, Gio Urshela hit that grand slam. So if it wasn't for that, the Yankees would have lost that and we'd be looking at a game three right now. So just everybody... From DJ LeMahieu all the way down to Brett Gardner in the lineup. Did a fantastic job, both on offense and defense. The pitching looked a little shaky, especially in the ballpen. But you're going to get that with a talented roster like the Indians have. And I am really looking forward now to this matchup between the Yankees and the Rays. It should be one hell of a series. I have it going to five games because it's a best of five series. And on next week next week's episode i will dive more in depth uh to this series and give a more detailed analysis and as well as talking about some of the other matchups from the wild card round and previewing some others in the, in the divisional round as well now the last thing i want to dive into before the end of today's show is that we've had two breaking news stories out of nascar in the past week or so the first one was that we have the GOAT of the NBA, Michael Jordan, forming a team with current NASCAR driver Denny Hamlin, and they announced that their driver for next year will be none other than Bubba Wallace. And the other uh, groundbreaking news from NASCAR is the revamped schedule for the 2021 season, where you have the Bristol race in the spring being turned into a dirt track, you have six road course races uh, scheduled for next year as well. You have Atlanta and Darlington getting two races apiece next year. And along with some other new tracks like Nashville, where they'll be racing at that track uh, next year um, as well. You have Chicagoland and Kentucky, both mile and a half tracks. They will be off the schedule for next season. And there's just... 
a lot of changes that will be made in the schedule uh, for next year. So the news with Michael Jordan uh, forming his own team of Denny Hamlin, I absolutely love that move. You know, Michael Jordan, he grew up in North Carolina. He grew up watching racing his whole life. He's attended numerous uh, NASCAR races throughout his life as well. And he is just, he's always been an avid NASCAR fan. And I'm so finally glad to see him uh, dive into the sport as a team owner. Now, if you know anything about Michael Jordan, you know he's a proven winner, and that's all he cares about is winning. So you you can bet your ass that he's gonna be taking this serious. You know, he stated that he's not doing this just to run laps around the track. He is doing this to be as uh, competitive as a team, like the Hendrick team, like Joe Gibbs Racing, like Penske Racing, and all the top tier teams in NASCAR. He wants to be just like them. Now, Denny Hamlin, you know, he is the third modern driver in NASCAR history to be a driver uh, slash owner. And that is way more difficult um, than what it sounds like. You know, you had Dale Earnhardt where he raced for Richard Childress Racing, but he formed the team uh, DEI with Dale Jr. and Michael Waltrip. Then you had Tony Stewart um, part owning uh, Stewart Haas Racing uh, while driving as well. Now, if you remember, you know, before Dale Earnhardt's death and whenever Tony Stewart um, was racing with Stewart Haas Racing, you know, yes, both guys, both drivers were competitive early on, but as their, you know, as their career started to wind down and everything, they weren't as competitive as they were when they were just drivers. Uh, Tony Stewart, for example, I mean, he really took a dive um, as a driver toward the end of his career. And I think a lot of that had to do with putting a lot of his time and a lot of his resources into being an owner and he couldn't focus 100% on just being a driver. So it's going to be really difficult for Denny Hamlin, who his whole career, he has just focused on being a driver of Joe Gibbs Racing, and now he has to put at least half of his time and half of his resources into being the owner of the team with Michael Jordan, rather than just focusing on Joe Gibbs Racing and uh, his number 11 car. So we'll see how that plays out, but it's going to be very difficult for Denny Hamlin to remain uh, that competitive driver um, that we see on the track um, every Sunday. So we'll just have to wait and see how that all plays out. But I, I really don't see Denny Hamlin being as good of a driver as he is right now next year and the years after that, um, just for the uh, things I just stated. Uh, it's going to be it's a lot easier said than done owning a team and driving uh, your own car as well. So we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. Now, as far as them hiring Bubba Wallace as their driver, I mean, yeah, I like Bubba Wallace as a person, but I don't think he's the right guy for this job, especially if Michael Jordan is taking as taking this as serious as he is who he wants to be competitive and you know run in the top five and the top 10 week in and week out Bubba Wallace has proven so far that he doesn't have the capabilities to do that 
Now, I know a lot of fans of Bubba Wallace and a lot of his supporters will say that, you know, he's been racing for Richard Petty uh, Motorsports. They're not a top tier team. So that's the reason why he's consistently running 20th to 25th every race. But you look at his whole career in NASCAR from the truck series and the Xfinity series as well. He's only won, I think, three or four combined races in those two series. And then his best finish in the Cup Series was second in the Daytona 500 a couple years ago. And if you know anything about super speedway racing, it's more about luck and avoiding the big one and everything rather than, you know, talent and skill. Because in those super speedway races, all 40 cars are in one big pack racing side by side the whole race and it is i mean does it take skill to win those races of course it does you know and you always see the big drivers winning those races but a lot of times you see the lesser known drivers like a ricky stenhouse jr or an austin dillon or an eric almarola you know those types of drivers you know get good finishes at those tracks like daytona and talladega because it is a lot of a lot of luck involved in just you know missing the big one staying out of trouble and everything like that so besides for that second place finish at daytona a couple years ago bubba wallace has not been competitive in the cup series at all so if michael jordan if he wants to win right away which i believe is almost damn near impossible i mean nascar is just it's a sport unlike any other where it's gonna take multiple years for a team to develop into a, a top-tier organization. I mean, you have to hire the right uh, car engineers. You have to hire all the right people from the pit crew to the crew chief to the car chief to the engineers working on the car, like I just said, all the way down to the driver. It takes a full team and organized effort into making your team and organization uh, a top tier one. So don't expect Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin and that racing team to be competitive right away. It's like I just said, it's going to take a good five years for this team to even sniff uh, top fives and top tens, I think. It's just so difficult for racing teams to get to that status as being a top-tier racing organization. And I just don't think Bubba Wallace will help with that process at all. So only time will tell, but you know I am very, very happy that Michael Jordan is getting into the sport. I'm also happy for Denny Hamlin as well, diving um, into the ownership aspect of NASCAR as well, although I think it's going to be a lot more difficult for him than what he thinks, it, what he thinks it's going to be. But I just don't see the Bubba Wallace um, relationship with that team being the driver. It's not going to work out well. Um, it's just they're not going to be competitive right off the bat. And Michael Jordan, I can already tell right now, you know, if they don't start performing in, in the first two years, uh, he's going to be looking for a, a new driver. And one driver in mind is Brad Keselowski because he just signed a one-year deal with Penske Racing for next year. And that's it. So if Brad feels like he can be competitive with this new team of Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan, he could be their, be their number one driver and have Bubba looking for another ride um, in the years to come. Now, as far as the schedule changes to NASCAR uh, in the 2021 season is concerned, I do not like the majority of the changes to the Cup Series next year at all. This is just another example of how NASCAR just overdoes a lot of their changes in the sport. 
Now, I will give NASCAR credit on a couple things. One was back in 2004 when they implemented a playoff system with 10 drivers competing in a 10-race format where the best driver of those 10 races won. And another one was a couple years ago when they implemented stage races, which just made the entirety of the race that much more competitive just to watch as a, as a fan. Because not only do the stage winners uh, get playoff points, which makes the racing that more exciting during the middle of the race, but it also bunches the, the whole field back up uh, throughout the middle of the race as well, which makes for a lot more competitive and fun racing to watch. So kudos for NASCAR for doing those two things uh, just to help the sport grow and to get more popular. But I, I just don't understand some of the changes that NASCAR does make, uh, including uh, these new uh, scheduled races for the 2021 season. I mean, why in the hell would you take Bristol? Probably the number one track for fans to watch. You know, they have two races a year at Bristol Motor Speedway. Um, some of the best racing you see of all the 36 races a year. And you put this gimmick of a dirt track as a points playing race. Now, I could see them doing this dirt track at Bristol for like an exhibition race or like an all-star race or something like that. But to put it as an actual points paying race... Um, for these guys to try to compete on, that is one of the most bonehead and idiotic moves that NASCAR could have ever made. And then they added six road course races as well. Now, I know us fans, you know, we wanted something different. You know, we wanted additional road course races, but they went from uh, three road course races as of right now to doubling that to six. That's just overdoing it. They don't need six road course races. I would say go to four. Just add one more and leave it at that then. There is no need to overdo it. And in saying all that, though, I do want to give NASCAR a lot of credit. You know, they listen to their fans more often than not. They're one of the few sports out there where they really do listen to their fans and they give the fans what they want. You know, a lot of the fans were bitching and complaining about too many mile and a half tracks, those cookie cutter tracks, and most of those races, they turn out to be um, one of the least watched and most boring races of the year. So I do give NASCAR a lot of credit for eliminating the Chicagoland and Kentucky races you know, and adding some more road course races and everything like that. But they just, they do overdo a lot of their stuff, you know. And and by the way, they took out the Brickyard 400, um, the oval race, the traditional oval race for one of the prestigious races of the year at NASCAR and turned it into the road course version. Now, if you want to add the IMS road course to the schedule, Go ahead and do that, but don't replace it with the tra with the traditional Brickyard 400 oval race that has been racing there since 1994 when my uh, good old buddy Jeff Gordon won the inaugural Brickyard 400. But now they're turning it into the road course race, and I don't think any fan whatsoever wanted to see that race turn into the road course version. And like I said, if you want to add that track, if you want to add that version, the road course version to the schedule, fine. But make it its own separate race, and don't substitute it with the traditional oval oval race at IMS Speedway. That is just the one of the most idiotic moves that NASCAR could have ever done. I mean, what's next? You don't turn the Daytona 500 into the uh, into the road course version. 
I mean, that's what's next, honestly, because the Brickyard 400, that's the second most traditional race in NASCAR right now. So I just, just that's just one way that NASCAR just overdoes all their changes like they have done in the past. And a perfect example of that is this stupid new freaking playoff format they have right now. You know, they have 16 drivers in the playoffs and they do these three race rounds and then they have the last race of the year where four drivers can qualify for the championship and it's a one race race for the championship. And that is the most gimmick, most stupid and downright laughable concept that NASCAR has done in the history of the sport. Because racing just in general is so much different than football and hockey and basketball you know, and, you know, those other type of team sports. It's just so much more different. You know, racing is supposed to be about consistently and finishing well on a race-by-race -race basis, you know, and I just find it laughable that Kevin Harvick, you know, he's won nine races this year so far. When he doesn't win, he's consistently finishing in the top five and top ten week in and week out, and, you know, I'm just waiting for the day where one of the most dominant drivers in a season, like Kevin Harvick this year, goes into the last race of the year, you know, for the championship, and some fluke thing happens, like he gets a blown tire and hits the wall, or he gets taken out by a lap down car, or he, or his motor blows, or something like that. And there you have it, you know, he, you know, the most dominant driver this year could possibly lose it in the last race of the year because of something like that. And that is just, that is just so freaking stupid in my book. Now, if you were to give me, um, you know, a blank sheet on how I should, you know, do the, uh, the NASCAR playoff format, you know, I would take it clear back to 2004 with some minor changes. So back in 2004, when the original playoff format came out, you had 10 drivers qualify based on regular season points, and then those 10 drivers would compete through a 10-race schedule to declare the winner of the championship. Now, I loved that back then in 2004, but the only minor changes I would make to that is that the top 10 drivers in the regular season standings qualify for the playoffs. None of that win and you get in bullshit. And then you would still have, you know, if you win a race, you get five playoff points. If you win a stage, you get a playoff point as well. And those would carry over into the playoffs. And then, you know, if a playoff driver would happen to win a stage or win a race, they would get, you know, those one points for a stage win or those five points for winning the race added to their total at the end of the race. And then the, the last race of the year, I would make it a double points race. To where that's exactly what it is, you know. If you if you win a, if you win the race in the last race of the year, you don't get five points. You get an additional ten for a stage win. You don't get one. You get two, and you know just so on and so forth. So yeah, that those were the. If I were to come up with a perfect playoff system for NASCAR, that's what it'd be. You know, a ten race um, schedule um, for the ten drivers to make it in you know, solely on regular season points for the first 26 races of the year. And then I would also give those um, drivers who made the playoffs um, points for finishing in the regular season. So first place would get, you know, five points. Uh, second place in the regular season standings would get four. And then third would get three, second two, and then fifth one. If you're six through 10, you know, sorry, you don't get any points at all for finishing, you know, in the bottom 10 the bottom half of the 10 drivers make it into the playoffs. So yeah, it's it's literally as simple as that 
without throwing all these stupid gimmicks in. Because right now, 16 drivers make it into the playoffs. The 16th car making it into the playoffs doesn't have a chance in hell in winning the championship. I mean, they finished 16th place in the point standings for a reason. There's no way that driver who finishes 16th in points is going to make it through all those rounds and make it to the Final Four, the last race of the year, and win the championship. No, that's not going to happen. So eliminate all that gimmicky bullshit, and, you know, do what I said. You know, just enhancing just a little bit on that original playoff format back in 2004. Just make, just tweaking it just minorly. Not doing all these major changes that throws everything off. Like NASCAR has done and is repeatedly doing with this new stupid schedule now for, you know, next year. So, you know, I... Like I said, I give NASCAR a lot of credit for listening to the fans and making changes, but they just have a tendency of overdoing it time after time again, and I am sick and freaking tired of it. So please, NASCAR, for the love of God, listen, actually listen to the fans, okay? You know, listen to what they have to say, yes, thank you for doing that, but don't put your own spin and version on what you think we want. None of us NASCAR fans want to see a dirt track at Bristol for a points-paying race. One. Two. None of us want to see the Brickyard 400 um, turn into the road course version. We don't want that. We don't want to see six road course races. You know, we just want to see an, ad an additional one to the three you already have. So there's four road course races. And then, yes, you did get rid of the two mile-and-a-half tracks that tend to be boring because we don't want those cookie cutter races that turn out to be the most boring races throughout the whole year so yes thank you for that but please stop with overdoing it time after time again when you do make changes to your schedule or to the playoff format um like i just mentioned earlier so i just nascar they need to hire somebody in the higher up position who makes these calls to just not constantly overdo it. And that's all I am asking for. And that's what for the majority of the true NASCAR fans want as well, I believe. So there you have it, folks. I think that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Montreal Madness. As always, uh, make sure to like my pages on Facebook and on Twitter at Montreal Madness. Make sure to subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And until next week, folks, uh, have a great weekend.